from Podcast One. Previously on Target USA. An explosion of spies. Three or four million. Half that number worked for China. Unprecedented Russian activity. To collect information about the United States. More than 100 countries working here. A big, big problem. American agents abroad. I looked up and saw a guy looking at me with binoculars. I'm J.J. Green. Join me on the next four episodes of Target USA for The Fog of Espionage. The enemies, defectors, the tactics, U.S. agents, secrets you've never heard. Now, coming up in this episode. The Cubans, they've survived this long. The regime has survived this long because they're so good at collecting intelligence. Pete Lapp is a special agent with the Washington field office of the FBI. They develop human sources, in my opinion, like no one else. One of those people was Ana Montes, and Lapp says she was a cold-blooded spy. She was so stoic the day we arrested her, the moment we arrested her, and I think she could have carried us out piggybacking. You know, that's how strong she was. The full story and much more about the Cuban spying operation in the U.S. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The Cubans, they've survived this long. The regime has survived this long because they're so good at collecting intelligence. Pete Lapp is a special agent for the Washington field office of the FBI. They develop human sources, in my opinion, like no one else. And they don't develop people that do it for money. In fact, they would... They would they would be suspicious of that. They find folks that have some kind of visceral empathy in what Cuba's trying to do or what their cause is. One of those people was Ana Belen Montes. I knew. I knew the guy that recruited Ana Belen Montes and Martha Rita Velasquez. Enrique Garcia is a former Cuban intelligence official who defected to the U.S., bringing along with him thousands of documents and decades of intimate knowledge of Cuban intelligence operations. I knew Cuba. I knew about the Cuban government project to get inside the U.S. government to penetrate the U.S. intelligence community. What you're hearing is a Spanish-language number station on shortwave radio. This is how Montez's handlers in Havana communicated with her. So she would receive two to three times a week high-frequency messages on a shortwave radio that were encrypted. And only she had the ability to decrypt the messages. She would type the numbers into a Cuban-installed decryption program on her computer. She was very elusive. She was cold-blooded, smart, and a fast riser at DIA, dipping into other intelligence agencies as well during 15 years of spying for Cuba. 
in the U.S. She was so stoic the day we arrested her, the moment we arrested her, and I think she could have carried us out piggybacking. And for some perspective on how significant Cuba's spying operation in the U.S. was and is, and how important Ana Montes was to that effort in the 80s and 90s, we go to our conversation with Pete Lapp. What, off the bat, would you say was the most remarkable part about that case from your perspective? The, the pressure that we had. DIA, when the name came to us, Ana Montes, we had been looking for her unsuccessfully for about two and a half years by that point. DIA was convinced from the day they walked her name over to the FBI that she was, in fact, a spy. And ultimately, they were 110% right. In my mind, over the course of the 10 months from the time I became the co-case to the time that she was arrested, it was the challenge of making sure we had the right person first, not wanting to get it wrong and be using some of our most uh, aggressive and intrusive legal tools against the wrong person. I wanted to make sure we had the right person. That was paramount to me. And I was very concerned because, because DIA was really convinced from day one that she was a spy. And they were right. But the FBI has to prove that. And, and at the end of the day, if we get it wrong, we're going to be on the front page of the Washington Post, mm -hmm. not another you know, agency. So in my mind, that was the most remarkable amount of pressure that I felt was making sure we get it right. Mm -hmm. Now, you said you were looking for her for two years. Yes. They, DIA had told you they thought she was a spy. So what do you mean when you say you were looking for her? Um, do, do you mean you were trying to, to connect the dots or, or, or was there, was, was she uh, an invisible name? It was an invisible name. We had a legacy, what we call unsub investigation, unknown subject investigation, where we knew the Cubans had penetrated the US government. We didn't know where, we didn't know who, and we were methodically going through with a, a picture, if you will, of what we thought we were looking for and who we were thought we were looking for. Quite frankly, we thought we were looking for a man. Hmm. The Cubans went to lengths to, 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 to um, disguise her gender, which made sense because of the percentage and ratio of men versus women working in government throughout the late 80s and early 90s and 2000s. If we knew we were looking for a woman, we could have much more narrowly, quickly have drilled in on her. So um, we had been methodically working through this process of trying to identify a suspect pool, but the great break and lucky break that we got was when DIA found out about our case um, without our permission, to be frank, and uh, we got a lucky break. And, and it was, it was uh, um, golden at the same time. It was also, there were things that we were not convinced about. And we had to have this reasonable amount of skepticism, like I talked about before, in terms of wanting to make sure we got it right. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the first part of this process to put this woman in jail if in fact she was committing espionage. So I would ask you what the next part was, but I would assume that was catching her, and I would ask you how you did that. Well, first we proved that it was the right person, 
We proved that through good old fashioned legwork. We had, we were able to match through some business records that a company gave us locally about a specific computer purchase. And it matched completely a, a, the, one of the strongest pieces of information that we knew about that started the whole case off. And to, that, to this day, that information still remains classified. But when we took this to the FISA judge and said, Your Honor, I know you don't think this is a very strong case. However, here's this piece of information from our affidavit, and here's the sales slip for the purchase. That made it so there's no doubt in anyone's mind that Anamantes was not the spy we were looking for. Now the shift came to could we prove and catch her in the act of espionage, and can we prove that she was committing espionage? And that might be as difficult, especially if the person is on ice, as you say, and no longer committing espionage. It's hard to catch them in the act of something they're not currently doing. So the challenge shifted differently and in, in, in almost a more of a dramatic way, to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. now we knew we had the right person. Could we catch them doing what we think they're doing? So I read a lot of court documents and a lot of other stories about what she was doing and how she tried to conceal her activities. And I ran across a piece of information regarding a computer, a Toshiba mm-hmm. computer, which she um, used as a part of a very interesting setup. Mm-hmm. At least I've read she had a very interesting setup to communicate with Havana and her handlers. Could you, or handler, I don't know if there were one or more, but could you give me a sense of uh, how that communications operation of hers worked? So she would receive two to three times a week high-frequency messages on a shortwave radio that were encrypted. And only she had the ability to decrypt the messages to her. They were one way. They were from Havana or Cuba to they were on frequencies that were anywhere from North Carolina to New England, which is not very narrow, to be honest with you. Um, then she would memorize things at work, classify things, three things per day that she felt the Cubans needed to know, and then would come home and scribe them into her computer, the Toshiba, in, at, at, the, at the latest version of her communication plan, uh, type them up on, a, on the computer, put them on a floppy disk, and then encrypt them using a uh, encryption program that the Cubans had written for her. And then she would hand them, which which really blew our minds away, hand them that disk encrypted to a, a Cuban here in the Washington, D.C. area who was handling her at the time. In broad daylight, at lunch, having lunch on a casual Sunday afternoon. But while Montez's handlers tried to protect her and keep her off the radar, her own behavior made her a suspect. There were gatherings in D.C. at various academic forums where Cuban intelligence officers would show up to do presentations. Chris Simmons was a former co-worker of hers at DIA. 
and someone who became suspicious of her. And she and other DI employees went there along with government, other government employees and academics. But in one case, she was warned, she and other analysts were warned that you need to stop attending because you're at risk because of the Cuban intelligence officers uh, that attend. You know, they were paying attention to what questions you ask, what questions you don't ask. And simply your, te- your mere attendance is important. And everyone else understood and stopped attending. But she was very adamant with our investigators Scott Carmichael specifically, who spoke to her, and she told him she had the right as a private citizen to to go to these, and it was for the good of the agency and everything, and shortly thereafter, another part of DIA security talked to her and said, you're right, you have the right to attend those as a private citizen, you do it again as a DIA employee, you're going to be fired. And as Agent Lapp said, she would meet openly in various locations around the Washington, D.C. area seemingly unafraid of being caught. At the end of a lunch meeting, they would predetermine where they would be meeting again and when. And and Montez, having a car, but being more comfortable taking the Metro, would, would leave her house, you know, half hour before the lunch meeting and jump on the Metro and go to the meeting. And um, I'm convinced they were, they were sure that she wasn't being followed because they knew where she lived, they knew she, how she would get to the lunch meeting, and I'm convinced they were, they were making sure that she wasn't being followed by, by us. How long did you follow her? How long were you, did you look at her before you actually decided, okay, we have to arrest her now? So our surveillance, we had a full investigation approved of her in November of 2000. Around that time, we would have been given the, with a full investigation, we're allowed to do physical surveillance. So our surveillance of her physically would have started around that time frame. And we followed her until the morning she was arrested from her home on September 21st, 2001, until she went to work. And when we arrested her at DIA 10 days after 9-11. I know she lived on Macomb Street. Yes. And I've been by there dozens of times looking at this co-op place that she was in. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was by design that she lived there? Did the Cubans, you think, say, okay, live here, do this, do that? Um, Because I understand it was a co-op and, you know, it wasn't very much to look at. No, I think think she probably had, their general attitude towards her was to give her wide latitude and freedom to live as she wanted to live. Um, they were always concerned about her security and being being arrested by us. But I don't think they would have directed her in one way or another to live in here versus there. Clearly, her living off the metro provided them with an ease and an ability to meet in person. Her preference was to have the passage of classified information uh, be in person because the last thing she was going to do is go walk down some trail in Rock Creek Park in the middle of the night kind of thing. That was a non-starter for her, for her own safety. And uh, I think just living in Cleveland Park and living in that area gave her an opportunity to live the life she wanted to live, which was more of an urban life. And and, uh, and also it did collaborate and, and help her espionage and mm-hmm. how, she, how she met with her friends, as she called them. I've asked you a lot of questions. I've got a bunch more questions to ask you, but I want to take a pause here with my questions and ask you to tell me 
The interesting things that I haven't asked you about or may not ask you about regarding Ana Montez's case so we can educate the public about what this whole situation was with this person mm. and why it was so important and why there was so much pressure uh, and in the context of the times. You know, I think, I think there's, two, there's two key points on that I would like to make. One's, one's personal and one's professional. Professional, the public doesn't really understand, I think, how difficult it is for the FBI to get a FISA. DIA came to us with the name, and they had her convicted that moment. And they were right. We had trouble convincing the FISA court that our circumstantial case was actually FISA-worthy. and It was someone who merited a FISA. The judge actually said, this is, this, is, this is not a strong case. So I wish the public would understand how difficult it is for the FBI to get FISAs. And this is someone who was ultimately convicted of espionage. That's number one. Number two, you know, FBI agents don't work these kind of cases in a vacuum. They have lives outside of this office. You know, at the same time, I'm working, and Steve McCoy is working our career cases, and all the folks that worked with us, my former wife and I were pregnant with our first son, Ethan. You know, we had challenges outside of here that this job and a case of this magnitude weigh on. You know, my son was born August 26th, and then 9-11 came, and then 10 days later we arrested her for espionage. I can't look at those three things without looking at them in its entirety, and you have to appreciate that FBI agents and analysts and professional support work the things we do and have a life outside of here, families, commitments, husbands, wives, all these things that uh, we are balancing, um, you know, protecting national security with, you know, having a life and mm-hmm. a family. Mm-hmm. That's remarkable. Um, I spoke to another former or retired U.S. government employee who worked offense. You know, you guys are the defense, and he was working with the offense, and uh, he talked specifically about the emotional stress of what he was doing. So I completely get that, and that is a perfect segue, you know, perfect transition to connect the two of you. There's stress on both sides, offense and defense, yeah. to do to deal with this. When you're home, you're not necessarily home. You're thinking about the case. You're worrying about whether she's heading to the airport, and you just don't know it. You're worrying about did surveillance, did she make surveillance? You know, so you're you're very distracted, especially in in a case like this where you know there's going to be an arrest. Or a person's going to leave the country, and and that's a bad, bad thing for for the United States if that happens. Mm-hmm. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure, and like a, on both sides, offense and defense. <laughs> so specifically, worried about her leaving the country. Yes. Um, the damage that she did. How much damage did she do? I think she compromised a tremendous amount of things that our country and our government were doing against Cuba. They knew exactly what we knew about their capabilities. I also, it's important to note that from 1985, and Anna, from the day she walked in at DIA, was fully recruited. She only went to DIA for the purpose of spying for the Cubans, and that makes her remarkable when you compare her to 
Ames and Hanson and many of the others. But for her first seven years of employment at DIA, she wasn't working Cuba. She was working El Salvador and Nicaragua. Those were two higher priorities for the U.S. government and the U.S. intelligence community. And the Cubans didn't take all that intelligence from her, all that espionage, and say, well, that's really interesting about El Salvador, and stick it in a safe. <laughs> Clearly, they shared that with their colleagues in the El Salvador government and Nicaragua. Um, so for seven years of her espionage, she was spying to the Cubans and not about them. And I think that shows with you the breadth of how other intelligence services cooperate with each other. And proof that what Agent Lapp is telling us is fact came from a former Cuban spy himself, Enrique Garcia, defected to the U.S. in the late 1980s, and he shared with Target USA exactly how the Cuban spy program worked. When it's not important the country where we were. It wasn't important what country we worked in. If in Ecuador, Mexico, Brazil, if in Angola or Ethiopia, or in Mozambique or London, the first mission for any individual working in Cuban intelligence was to work against the U.S. To work against the U.S. As you've already heard Lap say, it took two years to get Ana Montes, and when they did, that's when the hard work really started. It was really difficult. I found that the stress of the 10 months of the investigation with the possibility that she could stumble upon our surveillance and flee the United States was nowhere near the stress of having to interact with her wow. um, two or three days a week. Um, an unrepentant person, somewhat um, certainly intellectually arrogant in the sense that you couldn't convince her otherwise that, you know, I, she, she would refuse to, she acknowledged the Cuban government's flaws. However, she just was adamant that the U.S. government was worse and it became her ultimate motivation to commit espionage. And um, I think what was more difficult for me or added to the difficultness to it was her overall paradigm when it came to military folks that were serving in harm's way is that if she knew who they were and what they were doing, she would have provided that information to the Cubans, whether they were a Marine, an Army soldier, whatever. And her attitude was, if they died as a result of her espionage, that's the risk they took. And that was very difficult for me to stomach, given the fact that I had and served on active duty, but I served in the National Guard and had done enough training where these were my these were my people, my peers. Mm -hmm. and it was very difficult to uh, tolerate that kind of... Um, but you had to be professional because, for obvious reasons, but we, we were testing her memory. And the last thing we wanted to do, we wanted to create a professional environment. And I think we did a very good job of doing that 
to encourage her to remember something that happened 14 years prior versus just saying, yeah, I don't remember, which we probably wouldn't know one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So we try to create a professional environment to, I mean, we fed her salads and, and fruit and she had the freedom to walk around a room this size without handcuffs on. We treated her as a professional and that was by far the more difficult part of the process for me. I, I would have rather gone back to the investigation and done that longer. Because that I could control and the, and the, and the debriefings were just really, really difficult. Was she diabolical? Did she ever smile? Did she ever laugh? Or did she, based on what you said about her willingness to sacrifice the lives of people, um, for her ideolo ideological work for the Cubans, was that was that how is that how you would describe her? I wouldn't describe her as diabolical, uh, cold-hearted, indifferent, and self-righteous. You know her her mindset for sixteen years was that she knew she was committing a crime, and that led to a lot of anxiety. That led to a lot of meditation and a lot of yoga and a lot of things that she tried to do to mitigate that anxiety of committing a federal crime of which could have been punishable by the death penalty. However, in her mind, morally, she was doing the right thing and describes herself as it would have been inhumane of her not to have helped the Cubans, regardless of that it put a Green Beret's life in jeopardy in El Salvador in the mid-80s. And I can't prove that they had a meeting. I can't prove that they were sat side by side and talked about what was going on in El Salvador from an intelligence perspective, but it would have been negligent of him to have gone to El Salvador without sitting down with him, and that man's now dead because he was killed in an ambush in El Salvador. So I wouldn't say it's diabolical, but but cold-hearted and... and, uh, mm. and, and, and uh, anti-American I mean she is often described as ideological and I think it's somewhat lazy because it's she didn't get money therefore she's ideologically motivated I don't agree with that she's she was anti-American her attitude was how dare the United States dictate under Ronald Reagan how another country should run itself vis-a-vis -vis El Salvador and Nicaragua vis-a-vis -vis Puerto Rico vis-a-vis -vis Cuba so that's more of her, who is the United States to tell other countries how it should run itself, and therefore I'm going to level the playing field because the United States is bad versus, you know, Cuba's great. They've got a great model, a great system of government. They do great things. To me, I think it was more of an anti-American sentiment, which concerns me in terms of trends moving forward um, to the present day, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some understanding of her mood or her uh, interaction once she knew it was over, uh, you know, she was, was, was guilty and going to prison. Did she change at all? So I only saw her the day of her arrest. And then the next time I saw her and interacted with her was her first day of debriefing. So there was probably about five or six months of negotiating back and forth where there was no interaction. The day she was arrested, I honestly thought that she was just going to collapse when we said, okay, you're under arrest for a conspiracy to commit espionage, turn around, put your hands. Why? I think that um, 
perhaps I was a little biased in terms of her gender. I thought that as a woman, she was just going to collapse and melt. And that was wrong of me and completely wrong. She was so stoic the day we arrested her, the moment we arrested her. And I think she could have carried us out piggybacking. You know, that's how strong she was. Now, later on, she told us that once she got to her cell, she just melted and collapsed and cried and, and just lost it. But when she was arrested and when we walked her out and when we processed her, she was stoic and I wouldn't say proud, but strong and in control. Um, I don't know what kind of moments she had in prison because I didn't obviously didn't spend any time with her. Um, her debriefings when we were with her, she was um, kind of as I described before. Mm-hmm. Not quite as strong, but definitely not vulnerable. And um, professional, yet cold. Okay. Um, counterintelligence today. What lessons did you learn from the Ana Montes case that are beneficial to you today? When you're in the middle of a case like this, you, you see the same things over and over again. You can easily get into a mindset. What I learned about myself, which was very, very humbling, was that you don't always know what you know. We were proven wrong <clears throat> once we started debriefing her enough times that I was like, oh, I thought I knew everything about Anna Montes. And there were a lot of things that I didn't know that were pretty potentially jeopardizing. So having that open mindset ability when you're working something like this was, was the probably the biggest lesson learned for me. It was more humbling than, mm-hmm. than, oh, look at me, we did this. It was, yeah, you didn't quite know exactly what you thought you knew mm-hmm. once you start talking to the person. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is something that I've taken forth through the rest of my career and tried to impart that on other folks. That's the intriguing story of Ana Montes, an American who chose to spy for Cuba against the U.S. It was told to us by Pete Lapp, a special agent with the Washington field office of the FBI. And here's one of the most interesting notes of everything we've learned about her case. Her brother and sister, Tito and Lucy, both were FBI agents. Coming up in part three of our series, The Fog of Espionage. What's it like to be a spy? Being a spy out here on the streets is a complex, mysterious existence requiring constant daily preparation. Anybody walking by me probably thought I was a crazy person because I'm speaking out loud, reciting my uh, identifiers, my mother's maiden name, uh, my business, locations, uh, everything about that individual. It's, I call that flipping the switch. And when I become that person, I turn the key to his car and I drive to the airport and I'm never anything but that person. Whatever alias or legend I am doing, that's who I am until I arrive back home. A story of two days. One, a day in the life of an American working as a spy inside a terror group, and another as an American agent working overseas. Coming up in our next episode of Target USA. If you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen 
at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. J Green at WTOP.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security and international security and intelligence news, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can do it at WTOP.com slash alerts. As always, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to spend some time. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Calling all true crime fans, the Court Junkie Podcast is now once a week on Podcast One. Imagine being wrongfully convicted for a crime you didn't commit, or a killer is still on the loose, even though there's enough evidence for an arrest. The Court Junkie Podcast shines a light on the injustices of the judicial system through deep dives into court documents and interviews with those closest to the case. Download new episodes of Court Junkie Podcast every week on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.